There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. Part-time ministry as a viable option. This is episode 111 of Church and Maine. I hope that um, this episode with Jeffrey McDonald was um, helpful for you. And um, again, if you are want to know a little bit more about Jeffrey um, um, or ways to purchase his book, there are links in the show description. It's also just a reminder that it does take a lot um, to make great content like this available to you. So consider making um, a donation. And you can do that by going to the Church and Main website at churchandmain.org. Um, while you're there at the website, you can also listen to past episodes um, and also listen or uh, watch some videos, videos of our um, um, of our interviews. Uh, and so um, do consider going to the church, um, to the podcast website, churchandmain.org. Well, that is it for uh, this episode of Church and Maine. Um, I hope that you have a good uh, first week back to school, back to work. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Thank you again so much for listening. Take care. Godspeed. And we will see you very soon.
Well, Jeff, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat this uh, this um, day to talk a little bit about part-time clergy. Great. Yeah, no, glad to be here, Dennis. Thank you. So I think the the first question to kind of talk about is when I started in, in um, actually even before I was ordained, um, I remember going to a um, an event for my denomination, the Disciples of Christ, and um, it was in Tennessee, and they had the the regional minister at that time from Tennessee there, and he was talking about ministry and all the th- things that were available in his region and how great that was, and I remember asking him a question, and my question was simply, "Are there you know any opportunities for?" Um, kind of bivocational or part-time ministry. Um, Because I think at that point, I was already kind of thinking, did I want to do this in a bivocational way or not? And it was funny that the way that he responded, or at least looked at me at first, was as if I had two heads. Um, He was just kind of shocked by that. Um, And that was 20 years ago. And I guess my question is, especially in in light of what has happened, especially the last few years with COVID or anything. Do you think that that view of part-time clergy, that was just one person's view, but has that view about part-time clergy changed? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that it's it, in many ways it has changed, uh, but, but only in certain areas do we probably see that mm-hmm. uh, really it's a it's a it's a demographic or it's a it's a landscape that's in flux i'd say where we see more denominations accepting that part-time is what congregations can afford and so we see more and more judicatory kind of staffers recognizing that and working with it, even if they personally don't think that it's an ideal uh, format and they have not been exposed to many success stories within that format, um, they are learning to to open to it. Uh, so we do see more exploring of, okay, how can this work and, and who's out there who has... Uh, the ability to serve more than one congregation at once or, mm-hmm. or who can uh, balance their work with something else in life, whether it's raising children at home or, or, uh, or working in another uh, vocation. So we, I do think we see more examples and I could talk in more detail about what I've seen in that, if that'd be helpful. Um, but I also want to add though, that there's also resistance that lingers and so, um, and, and this is an important part of it as well, because like in the, take the Episcopal Church, for example, uh, the Episcopal Church recently had a report come out where they said that 56% of their active clergy are not serving in one ministry setting. They are not, they're not full, t- I should, let me clarify that, not full time in one ministry setting. So that's um, amazing. Yeah. 56. And this is active. This is not including any retirees. This is active clergy. And, and so they're, they're either serving multiple congregations or they're serving in more than one ministry site, like serving for the diocese and also in a parish or they're working outside the church or they're uh, doing something caregiving at home or something else besides their ministry. Um, and that that's consistent with what we see in what, what I saw working in my book, that there were at that time 46 percent of congregations, Episcopal congregations had no full time clergy. So, you know, it's a it's a norm, obviously a growing norm in that denomination. However, what I hear from folks that I interview on this is that the the boards that are involved in uh, examining candidates for ministry or those who would like to be candidates 
continue to make the message known that if you're not willing to give up another line of work, then you're not showing real commitment to ministry. And they use that as a litmus test. Now, this isn't everybody, but it happens on a regular basis is what I'm told from those who are involved in that world in the, in the Episcopal Church. So you have on a, on a national level, it's a reality that more and more clergy are serving in this way. And yet the gatekeepers are still trying to hold to this uh, standard as they try to figure out who's, who's really got a calling from God. One of the tools they use is to say, well, are you willing to drop your nets and, and follow Jesus uh, like the disciples did? And the way they interpret that is leaving another line of work behind. And, and there are that, some of us, and there are some of us here and also in the Episcopal Church who, I'm, uh, there are certainly many in the Episcopal Church who say, we need to stop doing that. That's, that's not um, a fair way to assess uh, commitment. Uh, but it, but it's a holdover from it's a cultural holdover. So it's it's a, so, so that's all to say that this is kind of a, a mixed bag. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because you know <laughs> talking about nets and all of that. I mean we read in Acts that Paul, you know, he did take up a side job, a side hustle, if you want to say, uh, of 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 tent making. So I mean. It seems like I could counter with my own, you know, biblical example to their biblical example. That just seems astounding that people would use that to determine, you know, people's readiness for ministry. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, you're right. There are there are those those examples. There are, uh, you know, Paul made tents um, and. His his tent making uh, was even even before he became an apostle that uh, he was uh, involved in that um, trade. So he brought a, a, a trade to it, and and he didn't give it up. Um, he told others to also be able to be self sufficient, so they wouldn't have to, mm-hmm. um, so they wouldn't be perceived as. Uh, you, you know, telling people what they want to hear and then putting his hand out uh, afterwards. Um, and, and likewise, other disciples, uh, you know, yes, uh, you know, P- Peter, and the other disciples left their nets and followed him, but they continued fishing. If you read far enough into acts, mm-hmm. um, you, you read that they, it wasn't like they never caught a fish again or, or did it for, for livelihood. So, um, so yeah, it's really, the legitimacy of the part-time model is is very well grounded in scripture. It's also well grounded in the history of the church, where this has been the dominant norm across the centuries and continues to be the dominant norm across the world today. Uh, this you could very well make the argument that this is a this may be God's preferred model, or this may be uh, at least a model that uh, that God is delighted to use uh, in growing the church, and 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 that this is you know there's a flexibility built into it. There's an adaptability to multiple cultures, and in today's culture, America has, according to the Freelancers Union uh, in, in New York City, they say that there are 57 million Americans who work as freelancers. There's a huge mm-hmm. cohort, huge cadre of self-employed people. Uh, there are gig workers. There are people who work multiple jobs for multiple reasons that have to do with lifestyle, uh, family responsibilities. And so we're really in a time when when work doesn't look the way it used to, where you'd have to say, well, if you're committed, you have to give up everything else and just be doing only this. This is your only form of income. That world is gone. And yet some of our mainline churches uh, and some of the institutions are are taking quite a while to accept that. I probably should back up. And then this is kind of a two-part question, but one is to, how would you define part-time clergy? And then two, 
How did full-time clergy, especially in mainline churches, become the model? Um, because it, it seems like that has very much been the, the, the standard, but how did that happen? And, and has that always been the case or had that, was that something that happened only in the last few decades? Yeah, great, great question. Important question, Dennis. Um, so in defining part-time, I'm referring to pastors who serve 35 or let's say 35 hours or less um, in one particular setting. So um, I use this term, I initially started out talking about bivocational clergy when I did my Mm -hmm. research for my book. And I found that that term was a bit too limiting because it didn't encompass those who serve part-time in multiple parish settings or or congregational settings. Mm. So, um, and yet the, a congregation that shares its pastor with one or two other congregations is experiencing it as that's a part-time pastorate. And, and my book is focused on how do congregations make this work? So, so we needed to broaden the terminology to speak Mm. of part-time rather than bivocational, even though the church likes the euphemism of bivocational as um, uh, because it gives a nod to, uh, one's calling can be more than church, but um, mm-hmm. anyway, that's uh, where that comes from. Now, uh, so so that's how I define part-time ministry, and the the question about the um, about about how this became the norm. Uh, this became this has not been the norm, as we said uh, over the vast arc of. Of, of history, there were times going back even to ancient times when um, the bishop Cip- Cyprian, for instance, back in the in the in the fourth century, uh, wanted to see dedicated priests in every parish. Um, but even then, in the affluent area of Carthage, it was not feasible. It wasn't affordable. So they could never they never realized the ideal then, and they never did. Um, for most of of history, it wasn't until uh, you know e- even when other groups like like the Anglican Church in in colonial days um, and the Congregational Church were were both keen to have uh, thinking that that was an ideal to have a one dedicated full time person in each setting, but even then it was not feasible in most cases. So you you often saw Anglican congregations sharing clergy and um, and coming up with other ways of empowering lay people in the absence of clergy. And so it really wasn't until the 19th century that this became more of a norm and got us to where in the, the late part, the late decades of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century were when we started to see that there was enough Affluence. It was kind of a gilded age function that we saw enough affluence in enough local communities that they could start to do this and say, yeah, we're going to have our own pastor who works only for us and um, doesn't serve another church and doesn't serve another industry and um, is at is available to us anytime an emergency comes up. Um, and, and, and that's, and that would become a norm. So it's really kind of a, of, of, it's sort of a bourgeois uh, status that mm-hmm. became an assumed way that this is how you this is how you do church. This is how you have to do church. If you're going to be a legit church, an effective functioning church, you need to have at least one full time pastor in that setting, if not more than one. And so we're kind of like uh, people who are looking in the rearview mirror and we see one, two generations that got used to this. And then we say, well, that must be the way it always has been and the way it has to be. When in fact, it's really arguably more of an aberration, uh, this, this norm, just like the, just like the post-war job, uh, working, uh, in, in, in an, in an assembly or a manufacturing plant, uh, 
it was assumed for a couple decades coming out of World War II that that that's uh, the best way of work, that that's the way work was going to go, that that's what a good job is. You you sign on at the plant and you stay there for your whole life. Um, well, that has proven to be an aberration too. Uh, and so what we're, just as the world is returning to a much more uh, traditional way of work, um, we likewise are doing the same in the church, I would say. Uh, and here's another case where I think life intersects because um, I my hometown is Flint, Flint Michigan. Um, both my parents were auto workers, so very much that was the model. Um, and especially um, post-war, um, people graduated high school and they spent a career um, working in, uh, spent a lifetime working in one of, out of the auto plants. But of course, that started to break down in the 80s. Um, and as a city, I think it was hard for them to come to terms with that fact that things cha- were changing um, and still wanting to believe in that old model. So, yeah, I can see where that the similarities are profound. Yeah, yeah, because uh, there are benefits to it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are benefits to having a full-time pastor in a local church as well. Uh, people get get used to it and uh, appreciate that. I, another co- kind of context we might see this in is is just the, the evolution of economic expectations and the idea that as we progress as a society, we we rely on others, we rely on specialists to do more things for us. And so um, we aren't growing our own food as much as our ancestors did a hundred years ago. Um, we might not even know how to butcher a chicken and, uh, or, you know, do the types of things that they would do uh, to put food on the table Um or to earn a living, or to make tools, or to make clothing, or to repair clothing. We don't. We don't do most of those things uh, ourselves. There are some who still do those things, but um, it's. Uh, we've largely sort of thought, well, let's leave all that to the specialists who can do it on scale and who can uh, do it more affordably and 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 better than we can. And we'll all just specialize in our own thing, and that sensibility, when brought to the church has led to dependency on full-time clergy to be a little bit more knowledgeable and a little bit more expert in a vast array of things than everybody else in the in the congregation. They they know a bit a little bit more Bible or maybe a lot more Bible, but they 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 know more Bible, they know more history, they know more about conflict resolution, they know more about pastoral care and um and how to how to officiate a wedding and so on. Um, it's a very broad job description, and 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 yet you you have to wonder. So um, could there is is this contributing to us becoming less capable as Christians as disciples because we don't minister to each other. We don't we don't we don't catechize the children ourselves. We don't. Um, we don't know the, uh, our, our lay people don't know the scriptures as well as they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how much of this is a function of depending too much on full-time clergy to sort of have that wrapped up? Uh, how many parents are comfortable praying with their spouses and their children, uh, at home, um, being sort of the, the the pastors of the household, if you will, um, how many have lost that as well from this trend? And so, um, so there's a case to be made that what we're doing here is reverting to a model that has been proven to work, that is still proven to work, and that's why I write about a couple dozen examples in my book. Uh, those where it is working, where they're doing better. They have more vitality on a number of benchmarks than they did when they had full-time clergy. And and it's important to see that God is still working through this model and uh, using it creatively 
and and that the muscles, the spiritual muscles that may have atrophied under uh, just kind of a, a, a drift into a consumeristic way of being Christian, uh, those muscles are getting activated again and exercised. And, and people are discovering it's really very meaningful and um, rewarding to be part of something that that expects more from them. So in um, the book, which you've written, which I'm going to actually show up as part-time is plenty, um, you actually do do a lot of, of going through a, a different examples of churches that are thriving. Um, what are some exa- what, what are some ways that they, how are they thriving? What have you learned about what it means to be part-time clergy and, and, and how does that translate into a thriving church? Because I think, and you talk, you've talked about this in the book that sometimes people tend to think that part-time clergy is a way, is the kiss of death for a congregation. Um, but it can also, but it actually can be a step into actual renewal and, and, and rebirth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and we are seeing that that's when I went out to do this research with a grant from the BTS center in Portland, Maine, they, uh, gave me, uh, permission to go and find the churches that are thriving on at least two benchmarks. And the criteria that I looked for was, have they stabilized their finances after going to part-time? And in all the churches I visited, they had. So they, they were not hemorrhaging cash. They had either uh, gener- they were either balancing their books or generating surplus um, and pouring it into mission. Um, the... Uh, and so that was one criterion. And then there were others where I, I was looking for those that showed at least one, if not more than one in the areas of uh, greater engagement of their members, uh, more participation rather than just uh, setting a check once or twice a year and, and showing up, but being more engaged in uh, the ministries, uh, having greater mission impact was another uh, area I was looking for. Uh, a third was having more participation in worship and, and greater attendance at worship. Uh, and and a, another was in stewardship and uh, having more participation and, and commitment to, uh, to that area of ministry. So, um, so, and that's what I found. I was able to find these in every region of the country, in every mainline denomination, all the, all the major mainline denominations. I found them in rural, suburban, urban areas. Uh, and, um, and I found them despite the warnings from a couple of the initial uh, judicatories that I contacted who told me, you're not going to find any. Uh, they, they, they said my, my initial phone calls were making me think this might be a rather short research project because I was, <laughs> I was being told that, uh, you know, if you want to find uh, thriving congregations with part-time clergy, you won't because by definition, they're not thriving. If they were thriving, they'd have full-time clergy. And and when I pressed on them to, to say why, um, they said, well, full-time clergy or part, excuse me, part-time clergy um, only have time for preparing and leading worship and doing pastoral care with an aging <coughs> congregation. That's all they have time for. And therefore, these churches don't, don't grow. They don't engage. They don't do mission. Um, they sort of uh, wither. Uh, and, and certainly there are, there are some that, that go down a path like that. Um, but that's what made this interesting was to find those that, uh, did not follow that model. They activated their people. And so we see, so the, when I visited churches, I saw places where the laity were much more engaged than they had been in, Things like a like like in Kent, Washington, at St. Columbus Episcopal Church, there was uh, I, I saw that the, the lay people had embraced a, uh, a a ministry housing the homeless once every quarter. So uh, they they had uh, they were serving hospitality in that way. They had expanded their food pantry. They had planted gardens uh, that the lay people were 
uh, tending so that the pantry was no longer just non-perishables. It had fresh produce. Um, they had a growing children's ministry. And all, and all of this was because they had people who had attended megachurches and uh, other settings, and they had felt like that sort of, they had felt it was, they were being given a very consumeristic religious experience, you know, come here uh, and we'll, we'll have something for every age group and, um, and we'll have music and, and we'll do it all for you. And you, you, your job is to show up and do what we create for you and drop some money in the, in the pot, in the pot. And that's what discipleship looks like. And these folks were saying, no, we want to be part of creating. We want to be part of designing. We want our ideas to be valued and our energy to be put in where we can really work on a more intimate level with one another. And so they embraced uniquely what these churches had to offer. And I saw things like that in, in other settings as well. That, that those are the types of things that uh, I can give you more examples, but, but that's um, kind of what, when you ask what thriving looks like, uh, it, it, it involves an engaged congregation doing creative things that, that people f- feel they have permission, so to speak, to do that maybe they, that they often didn't feel they had permission to do in other churches or in churches where a full-time pastor was uh, orchestrating the congregational life. And what is it, do you think, with um, a lot of middle judicatories that they tend to equate part-time clergy with decline instead of with renewal? Yeah. Uh, well, so in some cases, there's there's a, they they observe that that what happens is a a, a congregation will will go from full time to part time unwittingly. They will do it as a last resort. And they won't really plan much and they will sort of fall into it when they just get to a budgetary point and they say, you know what, we can't afford a full-time pastor next year. So we just need to cut the job description and um, either offer that to our existing clergy person or get someone who is going to accept that and, um, and, and wants to work in that framework. Um, So they sometimes fall into it and they do it, um, in a way that, uh, you know, having not planned much, they end up just sort of cutting off the things that they think they can do without. And so they decided to fulfill what that judicatory staffer was telling me about. They, they say, well, we've got to have a, someone lead the worship. We've got to have them here to do the sacraments on Sunday. We've got to have them visiting the sick and, and attending to pastoral care. And well, I guess we don't need presence on local nonprofit boards. I guess we don't need them attending ecumenical meetings or taking part in community mission or building relationships in town. And so they sort of lop off a chunk of the, of the uh, pastor's work. Um, And so why do they start to uh, believe that this is associated with decline well, in some cases, a church will go down a path sort of like that and and will become rather insular and not have a lot of uh, significance in the community. They won't have much impact. They, they won't have much that draws new energy. And so they do go down a path of, of decline. And as judicatory folks observe that and don't really have any... Uh, any alternative to offer to their people that they've had experience with, they say, well, I guess uh, these two things are correlated. I guess uh, going part-time is um, a contributor to decline. And, and so, so they sometimes will encourage churches to hold on to their full-time clergy as long as they possibly can. But the problem with that is they do so without strategy. Mm-hmm. They do so kind of blindly. And they so and so they will sometimes even draw down their endowment to pay a full time clergy person leading a church that isn't energized and isn't uh, fueling new engagement. Um, 
and th- so they just run out of money and and then they change their staffing at that point but at that point they not only don't have money they don't have people their their people have have drifted uh, their numbers have declined or their and and their and their faithful people may have held on for another 10 or 20 years and now they're too elderly to have much energy to be effective partners with a part-time pastor so you see it, it um it becomes a, uh, a a real problem when a when when judicatory sort of blindly say hold on to your full time people as long as possible because they're kind of sealing the fate that this church is is going to um, not is going to be too far along by the time they pivot the the more visionary folks will say um, look ahead and plan and go part time before you absolutely have to do it strategically do it in in a gradient go from full time to three quarter time where the people may may barely even notice if they show up on sunday and it looks a lot the same as they're used to they may not even notice um and yet you've just freed up resources and and freed up the pastor to do some other things and 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 so that proactive approach can can bear fruit, but uh, but but and, and judicatory are trying to learn these kinds of things, uh, but it it requires a cultural shift and it's taking time to get there. Now, one of the things that I kind of hear you saying a lot is, in some ways, uh, it, this is going to really require empowering laity um, in a way that they haven't been before. Um, in that, in the past. I think to use your term, and I, I agree with it, that it was more of a consumerist model, that someone just showed up and maybe they participate in a committee or two, but they didn't really have an active part in the ministry of a congregation. But what you're talking about here is really getting the laity to step up and doing some of the things that in the past it would have just been assumed the pastor would have done. Yes, Right. Uh, right. There is um, that that is something that I, I saw a number of congregations doing. And and one of the models that I discerned that that we're seeing happen across denominations is is a model of lifting up lay people, having the pastor kind of rethink his or her role to be um, not so much the provider of so many religious goods and services uh, as a, but more of a, um, an equipper for the people uh, to equip them to minister to one another and to minister to their wider communities. And so it's a different skill set, really. The, the pastor isn't just the only one who can give a sermon. The pastor also uses their training to train others to train lay people to give sermons. Likewise with Bible study, they can spend less time leading all the Bible studies themselves and more time working with a small group of leaders who take turns leading Bible studies or who, or who lead multiple studies within the congregation. Uh, And so you'll, you'll see pastors, this is a model at Christ the King Lutheran out in Tacoma, Washington, where they, where, where that pastor has, with the congregation, reinterpreted the role uh, to to do exactly what I've just described in those two examples um, and in a few other areas. Uh, and so, you what do you need for that to happen? You need you need lay people who are um, excited to share the ministry excited to be part of proclaiming the gospel, building up faith, ministering to their, to their neighbors, to one another, who really want to see conviction and uh, new life in Christ to be flourishing among the people and, uh, and, and really see. So they're not just kind of coming to church to get fed or to get their fix of something 
They're coming to church to, to give. They're coming to be practitioners as opposed to consumers. And, and, and I, I, I saw this in, in the other churches as well, that um, when they make that mental shift, when the lay people make the mental shift, they see themselves differently. So this is not just about, you know, how do you stretch the pastor twice as wide on a part-time <laughs> pay scale? Uh, this is how do, we, how do we rethink what we're doing together in ministry and how the role can be shared more widely. And, and, the, and the people who are taking turns giving sermons, those who feel called to preach and are able to do that in these churches are loving it. Those, those who, you know, one, one church I visited has a, has a dozen people who, trans, who, who work through a cycle on, on the preaching. Um, they, they sign up. So the, so the priest only preaches a few times a year. And otherwise you have lay people who follow the lectionary and who are serious about their craft, but they each bring their own style to it. And, and the congregation loves it. They say, we wouldn't want to go back to hearing the same person every week. That'd be so boring. They, they keep coming back to the same themes and they, 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 you know, uh, I mean, which pastor doesn't have their own favorite themes that they keep mm-hmm. trotting out. Right. Uh, but this is, and they say, this is much more, um, you know, that, that was a church that told me if someone gave us a million dollars, it wouldn't even occur to us to go back to having a, full-time priest in the church we wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to us because that's not we we can think of you know a dozen great things to do with a million dollars uh but they would have to do with with mission and with outreach and uh and 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 other other important priorities so um yeah so 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 those are uh, some of the things that, yeah, it, it unfold with this. And it's, ex- it's really exciting to, to see. And I think it's very important to lift up these stories, obviously, because I wrote a book uh, that does that. That's something I think is important. But I want to see many others doing the same to lift up these stories. What does it look like? Why is it mm-hmm. so rewarding? Who, who steps into these? And that's how you can encourage it for pastors who are listening to this and thinking, how can we do that in our church? How can we motivate people um, to take a different role if they're hesitant? Uh, Well, as they, pastors can give space in the, in the newsletter or in the worship service for witness, for lay people who have taken on ministries to talk about how did they, uh, gain the confidence? How did they, how is it rewarding to them? What difference do they see themselves making in the name of Christ as they do any number of things that used to be the pastor's job and, um, and let them do it in their own words. And, and that, uh, you know, film, film somebody for a minute or two and put it on the website that shows, that showcases this pastors can do a lot more to showcase what others are doing. And, and that's exactly part of this, like other skill set that part-time pastors need to have. It's discerning the gifts of laity. It's empowering. It's, it's teaching, it's lifting them up. It's celebrating what they do. It's, it's amplifying their work. Um, Those are not so crucial when you're a full-time pastor, but they are part of the bread and butter for part-timers who succeed in this. And, um, and so it's, it's important to keep our eye on that. So um wanted to I know I you um wanted to kind of be uh, aware of the time, but I wanted to kind of close this out because to talk a little bit about your own journey, because you have a I think part of the reason obviously this is a an important thing to you, but it's it's also your own journey um as a someone who is a part time clergy. And I'd love to kind of um, to share with the audience your own story um, and how that congregation that you're a part of has also has changed. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> yes, I, I have been uh, a reporter for 30 years. And along the way, I went back to school 
and so I got an MDiv, and I got ordained. Uh, that, that's now a little more than 20 years ago that I finished school and, and was ordained in the United Church of Christ. And 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 for me, the I, I didn't want to give up journalism. I wanted to find mm-hmm. some very new and different ways of doing it rather than being full time on a news, newspaper staff. Uh, and, and and yet I didn't want to give it up altogether. And so I um, was really excited to, to find that I could do this, that I could serve part time in in a parish and and do freelance journalism during the week. Um, that wasn't even something anybody talked with me about during divinity school. And, um, and, but, but when I finally started putting my hat in the ring, that's what the judicatory were saying. They said, well, we do have a part-time setting. I said, what, really, I can do that. Um, and so I jumped at the chance and that's what I've done along the way. Um, so, so I'm one of these people who's part-time by choice. Um, that turns out in the United Church of Canada, they, they've been doing research on this, and they find that the majority are part-time by choice in Canada. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, those who those who ask these kinds of questions learn some interesting things. We're just our denominations are not asking enough questions. No, uh, they're not. Uh, they're, they don't seem to show enough interest in this area. You, you ask them how many of your congregations have part-time clergy, and a lot of denominations can't answer that question. Um, why? That's if it's a if it's a different type of ministry uh, that requires a different skill set and and just requires kind of a different way of looking at it. Why don't we even know how many are are in this uh, endeavor? Uh, it sh- it shows a a lack of appreciation for what this ministry is and what it can be and, and where these churches are. So um, that's a little aside. But you were asking about my experience, and I so I I do this work. Uh, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm a church consultant, and I uh, am a pastor of a small congregational church. I, I currently serve uh, part time in Kensington, New Hampshire, uh, the church there. And before that, uh, up until about two years ago, I uh, well, I'm an interim in, in Kensington. I should say that. So I'm helping them embrace this part time uh, model. And before that, I was in Newbury, Massachusetts, where. Um, like in Newbury, we had uh, a, a a mission emerge in the area of a of a food pantry that um, came to us. That was just uh, another church was closing, closing. A Methodist church was closing in the area, and they said we we serve four or five people a week, and we just don't want to turn them away. Would you allow them to come here and get some food from your closet? And and that church at first uh, said, no, we don't have room, and um, I was one of a couple people who lobbied for it and said, I think we do have room in this big building that doesn't have that many people. Um, and, uh, and, and so they agreed and it, it just took off once they got used to it by, by having other congregations take part. It, it was one of these things that they couldn't have done it alone, but they had, it, it grew to have, um, you know, now there's over 10,000 pounds of food given out a month. At this, uh, the the community has uh, uh, pitched in, um, raised more than three hundred thousand dollars to build a building, uh, so there could be a separate housing space right there on site. Um, it's just amazing what they've done, but they haven't done it by themselves. They just opened the door, and then they said, "We'll have both other churches and secular nonprofits can can bring volunteers, and we can." Um, you know, with that kind of volunteer force, we can, we can do this. And um, so they've really met a, a profound need. And, and, and those are the, the kinds of things that um, when you don't have staff to kind of do it for you, and, but you open the door and you say, Hey, we've got a chance to feed hungry people. And as soon as we start doing it, they start showing up Um and, and you can see the impact that you're having. People get really excited and, and the community uh, has really rallied behind it. Uh, so 
so those are some of the things I've I've seen in my ministry that I've been blessed to see, and um, and, and it's very rewarding. It takes a little time and patience, but it's very rewarding when you see uh, lay people spread their wings and do what they're passionate, what they're called to do. Um, it's it's just a very rewarding arena to minister in. Well, in um, final kind of question here is, I want to imagine if someone is, let's say, uh, a leader in a, in a middle, middle judicatory, a, a synod or a conference, or, or they're maybe the president or moderator of their congregation, um, and they're in a strait where they may need to consider that they can't afford a full-time clergy anymore, what would you tell them uh, if they are considering going to part-time? How would you encourage them to take this step? Yeah, uh, I would. I would encourage them to 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 look at it and, if possible, to plan for it. Uh, it. It's not always possible. Sometimes it just happens, and that's that's okay. You can do a lot to um, to to learn while you're doing it. Uh, but if you can plan for it, plan a, a year or a year and a half ahead, then um, you can you can look at the opportunities within it and to really um, experience. Uh, well, uh, or or if you're doing it from, let's say you fall into it, which is how most churches end up there, um, and they realize, oh, we've got to do this right away. I would encourage them to take a little step back and take stock of what you're there to do, uh, where you have lifeblood coming, where, where is the lifeblood that you're seeing in your community? Where is, so, so when you think of, of the energy in your church and, and where it's getting an outlet, how it's flowing, this, this uh, lifeblood of God is flowing into areas where people have outlets for their passion, their creativity, their energy. Where do you see that happening? And, and how can the pastorate be designed to support that, uh, to support the gifts of the laity so that you take some stock of um, what are your, what kind of gifts do the lay people bring? If you have a number of people in the church, a lot of churches have teachers, uh, in their ranks. Teachers are very used to speaking in front of people. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can speak in front of uh, 30, 30 uh, eighth graders, then, then you can probably handle uh, speaking in front of the, uh, uh, you know, that many people in a, in a congregation on a Sunday. Um, so, um, and, and yet a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. So, so look to your teachers do some of your teachers have the ability to give a sermon? I bet they do. Uh, do they feel called to do it? Very, very possibly they do. What kind of training or equipping do they need? Um, and now you're you're already beginning to to build some of those supports. How about do you have any nurses in your congregation? Could they possibly be part of a visitation group uh, or or helping care for the sick, helping attend to the needs of the sick? Um, they very well might might feel that way, and and it doesn't have to be even just applying their professional experiences and skills. There's people who are uh, have have a desire to to minister and abilities to do so um, that just use a different side of their brain than they get to use at work, and and the church can provide that outlet. So so you're looking at it as you're almost kind of rethinking the pastorate and saying, what does the pastor do that, that we, uh, that's helping support lifeblood today? And, and how could that be redistributed among the congregation? And if we think strategically, we might say that some of those assets within the congregation can be, um, set loose and, and lifted up and, and, and supported. And we might also have the pastor then have, some new freedom. This is a counterintuitive thing to say, how could the pastor be more available to the community after going part-time? We wouldn't think so. We might say, oh no, we, we can't have them out in the community at all. They have to sp- spend all their time 
on us because we're we don't have much time with them anyway. Actually, that's not true. When you when you strategically rethink how ministry gets done, mm-hmm. and you have more folks taking part in it, now you can send the pastor to build those relationships that actually actively stoke the lifeblood that build relationships with those in town who have compatible values, compatible sense of calling. And now you're actually, you're, you're systematically working with the Holy spirit and, uh, and, and watching the, the lifeblood flow while being open to the idea that there's a lot of experimentation in this, right? So, so there's going to be some, uh, that's something else I'd say in this is, is just expect that you're going to experiment with some new configurations and some are going to take off and others not so much. Um, but this is, uh, you know, when we read the Bible, we, we, we see that God, God doesn't usually give people uh, easy things to do or uh, things that they're super comfortable uh, already doing. Uh, God, God gives people, tasks to that that stretch them to to go where they haven't been before and and be faithful there and and that's really um where where we can go and and we can learn a lot from 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 others who have done it because chances are maybe your church hasn't gone from full-time to part-time but probably others in your community have Mm -hmm. um and this is also a great opportunity for predominantly white congregations to learn from congregations that are not predominantly white and that have, in many cases, had more experience with part-time or bivocational clergy, uh, and can really partner and learn how do you how have you been making it work for these past few decades? Um, that's a that's a there's just so many good things that can come of this. I could I could uh, ramble on, but I but but. Uh, I think I think you see the the promise here, Dennis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do, and I've seen it in my own practice. And you know, it's funny I I did not bring up um, non-white churches, um, but that is having grown up in the black church, I know that um, it's kind of has just been basically their operation from time immemorial. Um, especially back home in Michigan, um, there were pastors who both worked in the auto plants or whether on the line or um, in white collar positions, but then also pastored. Um, So this is not unusual. Um, And if you look at the the totality of the church, it's just unusual in predominantly mainline um, and predominantly white congregations. But it's not impossible to switch to that model. It just takes some time. Right. Exactly. It's a, it's a more, it is more of a transition for some of these churches that have had a different experience in recent generations. Uh, but, but their churches likely had these models earlier in their history and can really learn from their neighbors and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and what a great way to, to avail ourselves to the the richness of the of the Holy Spirit's gifts. I mean, so much of this. I think First Corinthians twelve is uh, a, uh, a perfect passage for this whole area. One because it talks about having the that the, the, the Spirit's gifts are not are not all vested in the head; they're vested across the body, uh, and so that means the laity are blessed with gifts of ministry too. And, um, lady aren't always, haven't always been taught to think that way, but, but you have it, uh, in this and horizontally across congregations, like we're saying, you know, the, the churches that are, that are, um, not predominantly white, uh, there and have more experience with this. That's all part of the body of Christ that is capable of blessing the rest of the body in a, in yep. a new, in a new way that, um, you know, this is the right time for so many reasons to 
cultivate that particular horizontal learning. Um, I really want to see it happen. I, 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 I want more structure. Sometimes the denominations say, how can we support this? How can, how can we be part of, part of helping this? That's one way that you can do it. You can convene settings where we do some ecumenical learning from those who have more experience with this. Uh, you can also lift up the examples and give a voice to those who are doing ministry in this way. Let that happen. Let that be seen at conferences and denominational meetings. Um, you know, lift lift this up as a as a viable way of ministry that has its own challenges, but also its own blessings, and and just uh, allow it to f- to flourish and. Um, make room for it. Too often, you know, I, I attended a, a, a conference that was talking about uh, church security issues and this, the congregation that they put in front to give the talk was the one that was head and shoulders wealthier than all the others in the room. And so they talked about having police detail on, you know, all six entrances and uh, every Sunday morning and having uh hidden cameras that were, you know, all over the place, kind of watching everybody's movement and, you know, and everybody's sitting there nodding and saying, well, that's nice, but we can't do that. And, and there are too many, uh, you know, parallels in, in, in ministry education that are also uh, just unfeasible. So, so, so you need to lift up this sleeping giant within the church, which is, uh, Church is doing great ministry, but getting very little recognition. Uh, let's let's make more of, of that happen and um, and and see the fruits that that the Holy Spirit brings. So, where can um, people find your book, which is Part Time Clergy is Enough? And um, if people just want to even get in contact with you, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. So, um, right. Part time is plenty. Uh, Thriving Without Full-Time Clergy uh, is the is the book that you can find pretty much anywhere that books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, they can all provide it. Um, you can find information about me and my work at gjeffreymcdonald.com. Uh, and uh, so, so there's, um, yeah, you can, you can learn about, uh, my, my work there. And, um, and if you Google my byline, which is uh, G Jeffrey McDonald, um, it's the first initial G and McDonald is with the M A C spelling. Um, you'll find things that I've, that I've written. I'm, I'm trying to put more of that, uh, coherently together so that you can, uh, see, see articles on this, on this subject as I continue to write about it and speak about it and, um, and, and, and find opportunities to, lift up the what's happening on, on the landscape. There are many uh, stories that are, are worth telling in this arena. Well, uh, Jeffrey McDonald, who is the author of part-time um, is plenty. Thank you. This was a great conversation and thanks so much for the time. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis, for the honor. It's really been a treat to be part of this conversation. All right. Take care. All right. This episode with Jeffrey McDonald was um, helpful for you. And um, again, if you are want to know a little bit more about Jeffrey um, um, or ways to purchase his book, there are links in the show description. This is also just a reminder that it does take a lot um, to make great content like this available to you. So consider making 
um, a donation. And you can do that by going to the Church and Main website at churchandmain.org. Um, while you're there at the website, you can also listen to past episodes um, and also listen or uh, watch some videos, videos of our um, um of our interviews. Uh, and so um, do consider going to the church, um, to the podcast website, churchinmaine.org. Well, that is it for uh, this episode of Church in Maine. Um, I hope that you have a good uh, first week back to school, back to work. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Thank you again so much for listening. Take care. Godspeed. And we will see you very soon.